I've told this story before, I think it's been a while, but there seems there was a certain man who got lost in the desert out in Death Valley, and he was crawling across the burning sand, he was dying of thirst, when he happened upon a necktie salesman. And the necktie salesman says, can I interest you, sir, in a nice new hand-dyed silk necktie? And the guy said, have you lost your mind? I'm dying of thirst, and you want to sell me a necktie? Well, the salesman shrugged his shoulders and went on his way, while the thirsty man resumed his crawling. Finally, after hours of crawling in the desert sand, the man came across an unbelievable sight. There in the middle of the desert was a huge restaurant with flashing neon lights and a parking lot filled with cars and the desperate man mustered his energy and he crawled to the restaurant's front door. He whispered to the restaurant's doorman, please help me, I'm dying of thirst, I must have something to drink. The doorman replied with a disapproving frown, I'm sorry sir, gentlemen are not admitted to this restaurant without a necktie. Oh, <laughs> you may wonder what that story has to do with anything this morning, especially what does it have to do with Romans chapter 2 that speaks of the righteous judgment of God. Well, at least in some regard, the story illustrates a basic truth in the Bible. It's this, where we end up and what kind of shape we are in when we arrive and what we receive when we get there depends upon what we do along the way. Pastor Stephen Cole told about a co-ed that he knew in college who was Roman Catholic, and he and his minister friends, his buddies, his minister friends, as she called them, spent hours talking to her about the gospel. Stephen Cole finally persuaded her to read the gospel of John. He told her that she should read John's gospel and should ask God to show her as she's reading how she could have eternal life. Shortly after that, she came up to him beaming and said, I did what you said. I asked God to show me how to have eternal life, and he did. Stephen thought, yes, she came to John 3.16 and discovered that those who believe in Jesus have eternal life. But instead, she took him to John chapter 5, verse 28, where Jesus says, For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, and those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And she said, I will get eternal life if I do good deeds. How would you have answered her? That sounds a lot like what Jesus is teaching there. And it seems to be a lot like what Paul is saying in our text in Romans chapter 2. He says in verse 7 of Romans chapter 2 that those who persevere in doing good receive eternal life. Then in verses 8 and 9, Paul says that those who do evil will incur God's wrath. Here we come to the question of the ages. The question is, you know, this October 31st, we will be celebrating the, the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther beginning the Protestant Reformation where he nailed the 95 theses on the, the door of the chapel of Wittenberg. In, is salvation by grace through faith alone? That was the cry of the Reformation. That's what they insisted. Or is it by grace through faith plus works, as the Roman Catholic Church and other religious groups have taught? If it's by grace alone, by faith alone, what part do works play in it? 
You see, it's not just an academic question because your eternal destiny depends on getting it right. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul condemned the Judaizers for perverting the gospel because they added just one biblical work, that of circumcision, to the gospel. So we need to get the gospel right. We need to know for sure that when we stand before God for judgment, that it's going to go well. As someone has said, in this case, you don't get a makeup exam. Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11 is a tough section of Scripture, and we must get it right. So we're going to approach it very carefully, in some cases academically. I've never been accused of that, <laughs> right? But I want to give you an overview of how these verses are put together, as well as an overview of the, the, the main theme, so we can keep this in mind as we work through the, pack, pass, uh, the passage. Excuse <coughs> me. So please turn once again, <clears throat> that wasn't much better. Please turn once again to Romans chapter 2 at verse 6. The second chapter of Romans, the sixth verse. In this passage, we got verses 6 through 11. And I kind of hope they're on one page in your Bible, but they, they may not be on the same page. Because in this passage, Paul uses a literary, a Hebrew literary form known as a chiasm. Uh, the, the Greek letter for X is what? Key. So it's, it's an X. And, and a chiasm is something that says something and then it repeats it in reverse order. So it, it lists in order and then it repeats it in reverse order. And so it's like saying one, two, three, then three, two, one. So if you like to write in your Bible, you know, look at verse six and put a one out next to verse six. And then put a two next to verse seven. And then put a 3 next to verse 8. Then put a 3 next to verse 9. Now we're going to reverse the order. Put a 2 next to verse 10. And put a 1 next to verse 11. In other words, 1 and 1 at the bottom are saying the same thing. And so the main theme of this is, in rendering to each person according to his works, verse 6, God shows no partiality, verse 11. See that in verse 6? God will render to each person according to his deeds. Verse 11 contains a parallel thought, the same idea, for there is no partiality between God, be, be, with God. That's the main idea, the main point of this passage. God shows no partiality in rendering to each one according to his works. Now look, see how this works in verses 7 and 10. 7 and 10 are number twos. They have the same basic idea. Look at verse 7. God will render to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life. And then you go to verse 10, which is also a number two, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then the two middle verses are carry the same idea in both verses. This is the number three thought, as it were. Uh, verse 8, But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so in rendering to each man, according to his works, God, does, God shows no person or, or partiality. But for those who show 
perseverance in doing good and seeking glory and honor, they will receive glory, honor, and peace, eternal life. And then the two middle thoughts, but those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul. And so this chiastic structure is very helpful to us in developing our understanding of this passage. In fact, it's helpful in understanding the main theme because if we put it from the positive side, those who obey God persevere in doing good. Those who obey God persevere in doing good. They seek for certain things, glory, honor, and immortality. And in doing that, they receive eternal life and peace. In other words, they arrive in heaven. So let me put the main theme this way, and we'll kind of develop this as we go in, go along. My delight determines my deeds. My deeds determine my destiny. In other words, what I do is determined by what I delight in, what I like. I do what I want to do, what I want to have. It's determined by what I seek with perseverance, and where I end up is determined by what I do. Now, likewise, the unrighteous seek for selfish ambition. That's their their heart's desire. They're all out for self. And this leads to evil deeds, and they receive eternal tribulation and distress. In other words, they end up in hell. My delight determines my deeds. My deeds determine my destiny. And so with that in mind, we turn to the principles of God's judgment and how this works together in the righteous judgment of God. How is it that God shows no partiality in rendering to each man according to his works? So please turn once again to Romans chapter 2, the fifth verse. Go back to the fifth verse because verse 6 starts in the middle of the sentence, as I said. The fifth verse, Romans chapter 2. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, in the revelation, in the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. Here's the first basic truth. God's judgment is universal. God's judgment is universal. In judgment, God will render to each person, to every person, every person who has lived on this earth. Now, I know this is going to be bothersome for a while until we put it together with, well, how does salvation really take place? Why are you talking about judgment first? Because Paul talks about judgment first. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 makes this point. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die, how many times? Once. After this comes judgment. Men die, women die, we die. Once after that comes the judgment. It refutes those popular ideas such as incarnation or reincarnation and, and karma. That, that we get recycled, hopefully, to a better existence, and that uh, we'll have better karma in the next life because we did something good in this life. The death is just the beginning of a new kind of, 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 of life. No, after death comes judgment. Our text in Romans and every other scripture that touches on this topic clearly shows that there are only two destinations after death. There's eternal life, or there's eternal wrath. Now, some argue that the wicked will be annihilated after a time of punishment. Uh, that, uh, you know, they're just going to burn up totally and they'll go into non-existence. And, 
you know, really, that's, that's an easier view to accept than the, an, an eternal hell, I think. But uh, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, Jesus contrasts the punishment of the wicked with the reward of the righteous. He said, the wicked will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal is the same word both times. According to Jesus, life is eternal and punishment is eternal. So God's judgment is universal. And as a result, some will go away to eternal punishment and the righteous will go away to eternal life. The second basic truth is that God's judgment is based on man's deeds. Verse 6 of Romans chapter 2, God will render to each person according to his deeds. Now we've been ingrained with the truth that salvation is not by works, and that is true. Salvation is not by works, and the idea that judgment is based on works is a bit uncomfortable for us. But in both the Old and New Testaments, we find the consistent teaching, including the words of Jesus himself, that God's judgment is indeed based upon our, our deeds. And Paul wrote to believers in the 10th verse of the 5th chapter of 2 Corinthians, he said, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So one of my goals this morning is to help you see that the idea of God's judgment based on our deeds is not only biblical, but actually makes sense when we consider the big picture. And so that's what we need to do. First of all, God's judgment is universal. Everyone will be judged, no exceptions. Secondly, God's judgment is based on man's deeds, the deeds done in the body. And thirdly, God's judgment is certain. Both Paul and Jesus stress the idea that God's judgment is certain. Jesus claimed that God will repay. Paul writes that God will render. And in both cases, the underlying grammar makes it clear that this action is certain. The verses cannot be possibly translated anything like, well, God might repay, or some people are exempt, or God might render. But based on what we've seen so far, we remember what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, what the, the college co-eds read. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now that we've settled the fact that everyone will face the judgment of God and that judgment will be based on deeds, on works, what is done in the body, now we can begin to sort it out. Our text in Romans chapter 7 or Romans chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. The Apostle Paul is referring to two kinds of, of people here. There are those who are God-centered, and then there are those who are, are self-centered. There are those whose desire is for the things of God, and they persevere in trying to carry out their desires by doing good, and then there are those whose desire is for their own selfish ambition. They live for themselves, and everything they do is for their own benefit. And so verses 7 and 10 describe those who are God-centered in our chiastic structure, and verses 8 and 9 describe those who are self-centered. we got the God-centered, we got the self-centered. 
And this is the key truth that helps us understand why God's judgment is rightfully based on our works. Those who are God-centered will be judged on the basis of their works, and those who are self-centered will be judged on the basis of their works. And in both cases, we find that what people do merely reflects the condition of their heart, the condition of their heart. So first of all, we look at the God-centered heart, and then we'll look at the self-centered heart. We see the God-centered heart in verse 7 of Romans chapter 2. God will render to each person according to his deeds, verse 7. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, and to those they get eternal life. Now I want to take some of these words one at a time. First of all, the God-centered heart in doing good, by persevering in doing good, seeks for glory. Seeks for glory. The person in By perseverance and doing good, the God-centered heart seeks for glory. The idea is that they persevere in doing good as a pattern of their lives. Now, they don't always do good. Nobody does good all the time. But God is good all the time. We we heard that this morning. But but we're not good all the time. Those who are God-centered are not good all the time. But when they fall, when they fail they still persevere in that direction of doing good. It's their heart's desire to follow God. And in doing so, they seek for glory. That's not glory in this life or the seeking of glory for oneself, but rather it's the glory of being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. He, this is the person who has the attitude that Paul described in the first letter to the church in Corinth. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do all for the glory of God. And so seeking glory means that I desire to be a vehicle through whom God can be manifested and seen through me and what I do. That's my heart's desire, that God be glorified and that glory be, be visible. And seeking the glory means that I am more and more being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. From what? From glory to glory. Remember that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18? My life is more and more a reflection of God's glory. My heart and my soul is being more and more transformed into Christ's image. That is my chief desire. That is my delight for which I persevere in doing good. What I do, the deeds that I do are the visible expression of a heart being transformed from glory to glory. And secondly, the God-centered heart in doing good seeks for for honor, says for honor. Again, this is not seeking honor among men, but rather the honor of God or the honor that God gives. It's the desire, it's persevering and seeking to one day hear God say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You are faithful in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And thirdly, the God-centered heart in doing good seeks for immortality. Immortality. The God-centered heart seeks for the day when his or her perishable body must put on the imperishable and the mortal must put on the immortality. You see, Paul is not talking here about how a person comes to salvation by faith alone. He's going to talk a lot about that in chapters 3 through 6 of Romans. 
how a person comes to salvation by grace through faith alone. He's not even talking here about how God produces Christ-likeness in our lives, how a person is sanctified. He'll, he'll talk a lot about that in Romans chapter 8 and chapter 12. Here, Paul is describing what the life of a true believer looks like. Paul is pointing out that the God-centered heart, the one who has come to faith in Jesus Christ, come to Jesus Christ on the basis of faith and faith alone, the one who will stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ is the one whom Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, has set his mind or her mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. If you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord or as your Savior, you're going to delight in above all other things and set your heart on the things of God. You'll be heavenly minded. And the good deeds that consistently flow out of that kind of heart, out of that kind of life, gives evidence of a God-centered life which is characterized by those desires. Notice that Paul isn't saying that this person has earned his salvation by his good deeds or even by having a heart which desires God above all else. He is merely pointing out that the person who has responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith will be characterized by that kind of God-focused heart and that his deeds, his life, will give evidence to what God has done in him or her. It's an invariably the teaching of the Bible that judgment will be on the basis of works, though salvation is all of grace. Works are important because they are the outward expression of who the person is deep inside. Words, works are the expression of the heart. In the believer, they are the expression of faith. They are the expression of the love of God that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. They are the expression of God's glory by which we want to live and everything we do for, for God's glory. A person is saved only by grace through faith, but the operation of that grace transforms every part of our lives, doesn't it? So our desires are focused on what pleases God rather than what pleases self. This is the mark of a true believer in Jesus Christ. That brings us to the self-centered heart. In verse 8 of Romans chapter 2, Paul then addresses those whose desires are focused on self rather than God. Verse 8, But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also to the Greek. The self-centered life is characterized by three attitudes and actions here, really one basic attitude and then two actions that, that drawn out of that. They give evidence that their desires are self-centered. They're not God-centered at all. First of all, they are selfishly ambitious, it says. The, the Greek word that Paul uses here for selfishly ambitious originally came from a verb that meant to work as a day laborer. Well, that doesn't sound too bad. But over time, it came to describe the attitude of the one who worked only for daily gain. And then in Greek culture, it was applied both to prostitutes and politicians who manipulated the public in order to gain power. Some things never change, do they? 
Eventually, the word came to describe anyone who was willing to do whatever it took to achieve personal gain. And this selfish attitude, this selfish ambition is evidenced in two different ways. First of all, the person, it says in verse 8, does not obey the truth. Does not obey the truth. Because this person is so self-centered, he ends up rejecting the truth. Whenever it conflicts with his own desires, oh no, I'm not going to do that because I want this over here. As a result, his actions will conform to his own idea of truth. That's what people are doing today. We used to live in modernism, you know, modern time where you have your truth, I have mine, and truth is, is relative. Now we live in a postmodern age which says, I have my truth, you don't have any truth. All you got to do is watch the TV show, The View. I never watched it, The View, but uh, they have their truth, and everybody else is wrong. That's postmodernism, rather than the truth that comes from God. Secondly, this person obeys unrighteousness. As we've already seen in Romans, God's wrath is being revealed right now the, on the self-centered person who is given over to his own desires. So it not only does he reject the truth, but it actually comes to the point that he intentionally engages in evil deeds, that he knows to be unrighteous, and then he gives hearty approval, as we saw, to those who also engage in these things. So this person has desires which are self-focused, and those desires naturally produce works that are inconsistent with what God desires. And so deeds are, their deeds are considered to be, be evil. That, that's the natural condition of all men apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. This truth that what is in my heart will be evidenced by what I do reinforces the first part of what I said was the theme for this passage. My delight determines my deeds. And whatever I delight and whatever I want, whatever I want to have, I will do whatever it takes to get it. Whether it's godly desires or unrighteousness, my desires, what I delight in, will determine what I do. And Jesus certainly confirms this truth with his own words in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. He said, The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from what fills his heart. And so far we've seen that God judges everyone according to his works. Secondly, what is in my heart will be evidenced by what I do. Now we will see very briefly, we're not going to have much time to get into this because this whole chapter 2 in Romans and into chapter 3 is about judgment. Uh, so we're definitely not finished that topic yet. But we see what I do determines where I end up. The judgment, I want to mention a couple of things about judgment and, and just kind of close this up briefly. Because... In the process of judgment, before we get through all of chapter 2, we're going to see two different times and places, as it were, of judgment. We'll see what is called the judgment seat of Christ. Sometimes it's called the Bema seat of Christ, where all believers stand before Christ and they're judged on the basis of works. And then there's the great white throne judgment, where all unbelievers, all unbelievers stand before Christ at the end of the millennial kingdom, and uh, all who are at that judgment will be condemned. Two different judgments. The Bema Seat of Christ, Bema seat of Christ for all believers, the white throne judgment, great white throne judgment. But I want to close with this. So hang on to those thoughts for another time. If you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior, 
If you have trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins, you are a new creation, a new creature. Remember that. The old has passed away. The Holy Spirit now lives in you and is sanctifying you. The Holy Spirit is making you more and more like Jesus Christ. You're being transformed from glory to glory. God is changing your desires. God is changing your heart. And God will judge your deeds, not for salvation, to see how much, but to see how much he was able to live his life in you and through you for his glory. For everything that he did in you and through you. All those things that are of eternal benefit and eternal worth for you and for, for others. And some of those deeds that we did, they're, they're going to burn up, Paul says. We will suffer loss. But for those that remain, what? We receive a reward. But if you reject Jesus Christ and live with selfish ambition, your deeds will reflect the condition of your heart. Your deeds will be judged as you stand before Christ at the great white throne judgment and just one bad deed, one sin, will declare you guilty before a holy God. The book of your deeds will be opened and you will be found wanting. And then the book of life is going to be opened, which is the book of the redeemed, and your name will not be written there. I can't think of anything more terrifying, more frightening. No eternal life, only eternal punishment. Shall we pray? Father, most of all, we want to have hearts that are hearts for you, Lord. We thank you that Jesus paid the penalty for every one of our sins. We thank you that Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to live in us and that we are not on our own in this. And we thank you, Lord, as we have the opportunity to do those things that you would want us to do and have us to do, Lord. And, and Father, but as we think about these things, we also think about those that, that don't know Jesus Christ that are totally clueless to these things. Some think that by doing some good things, they're going to outweigh the bad things in their lives. Others, quite frankly, don't give a rip about you or how they live or, or what they do, Lord. And I just pray as we continue to study this portion of Scripture and as you bring it to us and, and your Holy Spirit teaches us, Lord, that... Uh, it would also make us more faithful in doing that which you have called us to do, to be witnesses of our Savior Jesus Christ, to proclaim his name, to lift you as God above all gods, to tell people in understandable terms what it means to receive Jesus Christ. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.